Let's all bow. All things are possible with God. Father, nothing is impossible to you. The things that I would like to see happen in this service and in the next eight months are impossible for man, but not for you, which is why we pray so much around here. Prayer is for us a confession of our helplessness and of your omnipotence. And so I ask you to come now again, as you so often have, and do things that are beyond human possibility, like causing us to know that we are loved. I ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. This is the last message that I will uh, preach to you before the leave of absence, which starts on May 1, and I see it as a continuation of last week's message. The, The point of that message was that God loves you, you, Bethlehem, corporately, He loves this church as a body, and you, Bethlehem, a a collection of individual sons and daughters of the living God. He loves you so much that it is so spectacular, you do need supernatural help to both understand it and feel it. I mean that very, very explicitly, biblically, intentionally, without any exaggeration whatsoever. You cannot, you cannot grasp, that is, you cannot experience consciously the love of God for you. You cannot, apart from omnipotent, divine, supernatural power enabling you to experience it. Here's a prayer. We are, by the way, in this message going to get to the text, unlike last week. But this is all rehearsal from last week. Here's a prayer from Ephesians. You don't need to look it up. Just listen carefully. Chapter 3, verse 18. I pray. This is Paul now praying for the Ephesians in the way I pray for you, for myself, for my family. I pray that you may have strength to know the love of Christ. You can't know it without power. Does that strike you as odd? You should give a lot of thought to that. Why can't I know what it is to be loved without divine power? I'll keep reading that that prayer. I pray that you, you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The love, of God, the love of Christ, the love of God, surpasses the powers of the mind to comprehend and the powers of the human heart to experience. It surpasses our fallen capacities to handle with our brain and to experience with our heart. It goes beyond what you're able to do, which is why Paul is praying and why I pray for myself this way and for you this way.
may you have strength to comprehend the love of Christ. Soul strength, heart strength, mind strength. May God give this to us now. Now in the service. Now downtown north. Now, Holy Spirit, come. This is why Paul said in Romans 5, verse 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The love of God pours into you not by any human agency, by the Holy Spirit. It's a divine thing to know yourself loved by God. You're not able to on your own. Now, the question I posed last week was, why is it that the Bible reveals the love of God for us, including God's making so much of us? Why is it that He reveals His love for us, His making so much of us in ways that constantly call attention to His own glory. Why does He do it that way? And the answer is this. If God didn't do it that way, if He didn't love us in a way that constantly called attention back to His glory as the source, as the essence, as the goal, if He didn't do it that way, we would be so much more likely to turn the love of God into a subtle means of self-exaltation. We would use His love to make ourselves the deepest foundation of our joy instead of Himself. God would become the servant of our slavery to self. We would take our preciousness to God and make that very preciousness to God our God. But I argued God loves us so much. We are so precious to Him that He will not let that happen. We are so precious to God that God in great mercy will not let our preciousness to Him become our God. We will indeed, hear this carefully, we will indeed through all eternity enjoy being made much of by God. That will be a profound ingredient in our joy in God. That He makes so much of His sons and, in, and His daughters. But He will work in us such a holiness, such a sanctification, such a freedom from sin that... He will protect us 
from making that the bottom of our joy. The bottom of our joy will always be that he's the kind of God who delights in us. The bottom of our joy will always be that he's the kind of God who makes much of the likes of me. This grace, this grace will be the apex of my joy, the apex of my praise forever. It will never terminate here. It will always go back there. From him, through him, and to him are all things. God himself will be the beginning, the middle, and the end in his love for me. And because he loves you in this spectacular way, I argued, we have good reason to believe that the next eight months of my absence will be a time of extraordinary blessing on this church. Personally and corporately. So what I want to do in this message is take that a little further and give another textual, biblical reason for why you should be confident of that and pray toward that. That this love, this kind of love, this way of loving us, this way of loving us, I want to add another extension of that from this text that was read to show why it increases our confidence that when I am taken out of the way, God's going to show up more. Okay? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Now, here's a link with last week in this text. In these six verses of 26 to 31 of 1 Corinthians 1, in these six verses, Paul describes at least, depends on how you divide it up, four ways that God loves us, loves you personally. Four ways that He loves you, and by you, let's get this clear now, by you, I don't mean everybody. God doesn't love everybody in the same way. The, the kinds of love that are described here are for those who have been awakened in their heart to see themselves as desperate sinners in need of a Savior, and Christ crucified has shown for them as their wisdom and their power. And He has become compellingly true and beautiful and attractive and valuable, and you have received Him, and He is yours, and you are His. That's who I'm talking about. I hope the rest of you who aren't in that category will be drawn in by this message. Okay? That's the way I see things. I'm sure not everybody in this room is in that category. There's just too many of you, and there's lots of people of all different kinds. And so my prayer is that those of you inside will feel massively loved in fresh new ways, and those on the outside would become so jealous and envious that you would be drawn in. What we have in these six verses is four ways that He loves us, and then a double purpose for why He loves us this particular way. 
So two things. Four ways that he loves us and a double purpose for why he would love us that way. So it's a, a how question and a why question. Got it? How does he love me? Why does he love me this way? And the answers to those two questions are here in this text. So let's take it in reverse order. Let's go to the purposes first. A double purpose for why he loves us in these four ways. The first half of the double purpose is verse 29. So that, you see a so that, you know, some kind of result of purpose is coming. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So the purpose of God in loving us in these ways is so that we will be loved in a way that does not incline us to boast in ourselves in the presence of God. That's the purpose of loving us this way, so that no human being will put their arms in their suspenders and say, what a good boy am I in the presence of God. He loves us so much, he will not let us ruin the glorious experience of being loved by turning God's love into a reason to boast in ourselves. He loves you too much. He will not let you ruin the, the experience of being loved by God. He won't let you ruin it by converting it in, in our fallen way into a, an experience of boasting in the presence of God in ourselves. He loves you too much. He will not let that happen to you. He will come at you from every side imaginable to kill that in you. So that what? Second half of the double purpose is found in verse 31. So that, as it is written, let everyone who boasts, boast in the Lord. So you see the contrast. Verse 29 his purpose in loving us this way is so that nobody will boast in the presence of the Lord. And, and the positive way of saying it in verse 31 is so that the one who boasts, boasts only in the Lord. Oh, we're going to boast in the presence of the Lord, all right. We're going to brag on God forever and not ourselves. We will not boast in our own doing. We stand in front of a mirror in heaven and like what we see, which I suppose we would if there'd be mirrors. I don't think there'd be any mirrors in heaven. Just an opinion. If we stood there, we would say, praise God. That's what we would say. So there is the double purpose in the text for the four ways that I'm now going to show you that he loves you. First way, so that you won't boast in yourself in his presence, or putting it positively, verse 31, so that you will boast in the Lord. Oh, that this church would be resounding in hallways and small groups and families with boasting in the Lord. Speak well of the Lord. Say much about the Lord. Talk about his deeds. I just read this morning in my devotions, you have made me glad by your works. And I spent about two minutes, I suppose, just naming them and being glad, sitting on the couch, just being glad in the works of God. Name them. 
Exult. Boast in God. Forget about your painful self for a moment. It just might get well. What are the four ways that you are loved in this text? I'll name them, then we'll look at them. Number one, God chose you. He loved you by choosing you. Number two, He called you. Number three, He put you in Christ. Number four, He made Christ your wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That's it. Those are the four ways in this text that God loves you. Let's take them one at a time. Number one, God loved you by choosing you. Verse 27 and 28, God chose What is foolish in the world to shame the wise? God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Very clear, God chose. If you are Christ, He chose you. He leaves some unchosen, He chooses others. If you are in, He chose you. In fact, if you ask them, when did that happen? This word in the Greek for chose is only used one other place outside this text. Ephesians 1.4, which was the text we looked at last week. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Only that place in Paul. Does it occur? And therefore, I take it to mean he chose you, he chose you, he chose you in verses 27 and 28, meaning from eternity. That's why in Romans 11:5, when he uses the noun, not the verb, he calls it the election of grace. Meaning that when God stood in eternity and contemplated you, he contemplated you as needing saving in Christ. I get that from verses 4 through 7 of Ephesians where we are chosen in Christ. We don't need to be chosen in Christ if we aren't sinners. We need to be chosen in Christ if we need righteousness, if we need forgiveness and redemption. He contemplated, he saw all of us as unworthy of being chosen. Nobody is wronged if they're unchosen. You are just spectacularly blessed for nothing in yourself. This love is absolutely unconditional without any exception. So, No, O Holy Spirit. If it doesn't happen right now, let it happen later tonight or later this week. Sooner or later, come and pour this being loved from eternity. I don't know about you, but I was really helped by my sermon last week. (laughs) I just, I just. I've been, I've been just sitting around saying, He chose me in love. He created me in love. He sent Jesus in love. He died for me in love. He keeps me in love. He made much of me by sitting me on His throne. He made much of me. I just, I've just been going all through that, just preaching to myself. 
I need as much help as anybody. So I'm preaching the same sermon. Number two, God loved you by calling you. So first, he chose you. And now, secondly, God loved you by calling you. Verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. That's what I'm asking you to do right now. Just do some considering right now. And the first thing I suppose you'd ask is, what's he talking about? My job? Carpenter? Nurse? Teacher? Homemaker? No, that's not what he's talking about. How do, you, how do you know that's not what he's talking about? Well, mainly I know because of verses 22 to 24. Read this. Consider. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Consider your calling as I read verses 22 to 24. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles, or Greeks. Same, he's using them interchangeably. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So when, when the called look at Christ crucified, they don't see stumbling block, they don't see folly, they see power. So, there are three groups, right? Three groups in those verses. Number one, Jews. Number two, Gentiles. Number three, called. That's not quite accurate, is it? Let me say it a little more carefully. There are Jews who are not called, Gentiles who are not called, and Jews and Gentiles who are called. Those are the three groups. Are you with me? This is, we're considering our calling. We're obeying verse 26. There are Jews not called, Gentiles not called, Jews and Gentiles, some of whom are called. And then he describes the response of each to the cross. Jews, yeah, stumbling block, crucified Messiah, never heard of such a thing. Gentiles, foolishness, a dying God, silly, mythological, called power, my God. What kind of call is that? I'll tell you what kind of call it is. It's the kind of call that creates what it commands. The call gives light. The call creates sight. The call raises the dead. Lazarus, come forth. He didn't decide to. The call raised him from the dead. Let me give you a an analogy that could be misleading, it helps me. Just to get your hand around, because lots of you have never been taught about the call of God. The mighty, effectual, irresistible, powerful, saving, wakening, life-giving call of God that saved you. You've never been taught about this. So you need a little analogy to help you. What is he talking about? I've never heard anything like this. I thought I just believed in Jesus and and... Suppose somebody is asleep and you want to wake them up. What do you do? Well, you bend over and they're sound asleep. You bend over them and you say, wake up! 
and they bolt right upright. Now, what are the dynamics of that moment? They were sound asleep and bang, they were awake. Did, did, they, did they hear the call and say, I'll think about that before I wake up. And then, and then I'll, I'll decide if I want to wake up. That is a good analogy. When God issues a call to your dead heart and says, wake up, you wake up. You did not make yourself a Christian. Just face it, you didn't make yourself a Christian, which is why you should feel so incredibly loved. In fact, if you need a text to say that, just go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul says, just as clearly as can be, because of his great love. It's the only place he uses that phrase in all the New Testament. Because of his great love, he made you alive when you were dead. So if you have any spiritual life in you at all, you have been greatly loved. It's called regeneration. It's called calling. You have been called and you are greatly loved in this calling. Number three, God loved you by putting you in Christ. Verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. That's pretty clear. In the original, very, very literally, it would go, from him are you in Christ Jesus. Or of him are you in Christ Jesus. Because is probably a pretty good translation. Because of his doing, because of his work, you are in Christ Jesus. So he he chose you before the foundation of the world. He, through Billy Graham or a preacher or your mom's testimony or reading the Bible or hearing a, a worship song or however he wanted to do it as far as human agency goes, he spoke the word, wake up or come or live. And you suddenly stopped seeing the cross as folly You stopped seeing the cross as boring. You stopped seeing the cross as mythological. You stopped seeing the cross as a stumbling block. And suddenly it was what you needed and true. And you embraced it. You embraced it. Because God woke you up, changed your heart. And when in that, you were united to Christ. Back in when we were talking about the doctrine of regeneration or um, the new birth, I tried to explain how calling, regeneration, faith, union with Christ are simultaneous. There are causal connections here, but there aren't temporal gaps. In an instant, in an instant, he wakened you from the dead. Your eyes now went, and what you saw was a glorious Christ. And in seeing him as glorious, you were a believer. You were. That's what believer means. He's glorious. He's Savior. He's Lord. He's mine. That's what it is to see him for what he really is. And in that moment, you were united to Jesus. Which means 
Number four. God loved you by making Christ your wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. So God awakened you, united you to Christ so that you have a, a vital union with Jesus. You're connected with him like, maybe like a vine and a branch. Who, that is Christ, became to us, are you with me in verse 30? Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So, when you unite with Christ, all that He is now, you are, without making you God. All the benefits that are in Him, all the inheritance that is in Him, all that He ever purchased, all the obedience He ever performed, all the forgiveness He ever purchased, you now have by virtue of, of union with Him, which you feel by faith, and God worked sovereignly. If there were time, it, and it's not my focus, I would take each one of these, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, and show you how differently each one Christ is for you. But all I want to do here is, is move to one last observation by saying he, he has become, through God's loving you this way, everything for you. Which is why when I walked in tonight and heard the worship team rehearsing, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. I said to Chuck, okay, I'm doing an audible here. I had a hymn picked out for the end. Bang, we're going to do that. And now I'm saying that, I'm realizing to the two campuses, and I don't know if you're going to do it that way. So don't worry about it. If you don't do it that way, not a problem. <laughs> All I have is Christ, verse 30, right? If I need wisdom, He's my wisdom. If, I'm right, if I need righteousness, He's my righteousness. If I need sanctification, redemption, you are loved. Let's sum it up. You are loved, Bethlehem. You are loved, sons and daughters of God, because God chose you for Himself. Secondly, you are loved because He called you to Himself. Number three, you are loved because He united you to Christ. And four, by making you one with Christ, Christ becomes everything you need. That's what it is to be loved by God. And He did it that way so that no human being would boast in the presence of God. And so that we would all boast in the Lord, as you can see, is most obvious that we should. Now, I said at the beginning, this sermon was an extension of last Sunday's sermon with a view to adding another reason for why your expectation should be high that when I go away, God's going to show up in greater power. Now, we draw attention to what we entirely have overlooked in this text, and it is probably among the most important things, right? Namely, what kind of people did he choose? And how does it function? 
what we have left out so far and will now attend to is an entire emphasis on the fact that God regularly glorifies himself by setting aside human power to magnify his own. God regularly glorifies himself by setting aside human wisdom to magnify his own. God regularly glorifies himself by setting aside human honor to magnify his own. So let's read it. Verses 26 to 28. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. And you should be asking why. Why why did he do it that way? Why, Why didn't he go out and select the hot shots? Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Now here is one way that that relates to our situation. Whatever natural wisdom or strength or honor that I bring to this pulpit, it may at times stand in the way of God's fullest blessing. It may be God's design that the blessing he has for this church will reach a much higher level in my absence than in my presence. I wrote the Star article this week. That's our newsletter article and If you've read it, this will sound familiar, and if you haven't, I hope you will. About Robert Murray McChain. Robert Murray McChain, a pastor in Dundee, Scotland, 1839, he left his church for eight months. He left at the beginning of April instead of the beginning of May. And he came back at the end of November instead of the end of December. And I was struck by this. So I poked around. Before he left, and while he struggled with whether to leave or not, he wrote this. I sometimes think that a great blessing may come to my people in my absence. Often God does not bless us when we are in the midst of our labors, lest we say, my hand and my eloquence have done it. He removes us into silence and then pours down a blessing so that there is no room to receive it, so that all that see it cry out, it is the Lord. After McShane had chosen his substitute, namely William Burns, the son of the pastor a few miles away in Kilsyth, Scotland, he wrote to uh, Burns, the son who's going to preach for him while he was gone. I hope, and this is my, all this is me. I'm not just dabbling in history here. This is all adopted by me. I hope you may be a thousand times more blessed among them than I ever was. 
Perhaps there may be many souls. Perhaps there are many souls that would never have been saved under my ministry who may be touched under yours. And God has taken this method of bringing you into my place. His name is wonderful. And the amazing thing is that God answered his prayer. In August of 1839, while McChain was very sick, they thought he might die. He was in Turkey, in, uh, near the town of Izmir, Turkey. He was thinking he was dying and desperately praying for revival in his home church of Dundee. And revival came to Kilseth, several miles away, and then spread in August to Dundee. Here's what it says. Two days after the revival came, nearby, came to nearby Kilsith, the Spirit began to work in St. Peter's at the time of the prayer meeting in the church in a way similar to Kilsith. Day after day, the people met for prayer and hearing the Word, and the time of the apostles seemed to return when the Lord added to the church daily such as were being saved. McShane did return uh, in November of 1839 and died in 1843. So it's a little less than four years later at the age of 29. What an impact for a 20-something. I hope that all you 20-somethings dream a dream way bigger than most 20-somethings are dreaming, dinking around with their iPad. <laughs> I ended the Star article with this prayer, and I will, I will close with this prayer. So I'm going to read it to you, and you keep your eyes open and, and think about it. You can be praying with your eyes open. Um, Because, you know, the word revival is bandied about by a lot of people in a lot of different ways. And my prayer is so that you know what I mean. When I'm praying for revival in this church, this is what I'm praying, okay? It's, it's really not complicated at all. You just start listing the thing that God is doing all the time in individual lives, and you ask that he do it a lot for a lot of people at one time. That's all it is. Oh, Lord. As you are often accustomed to do, show your great power in my absence. Let me stop again. I do promise to pray for you this prayer or one like it every day. All right? I am promising to get down on my knees with my open Bible. I'll, I'll print this out. You can print it out as well. And pray this or something like it every day for you. Okay? O Lord, as you are often accustomed to do, show your great power in my absence. Send a remarkable awakening that results in hundreds of people coming to Christ. Old animosities being removed, marriages being reconciled and renewed, wayward children coming home, long-standing slavery to sin being conquered, spiritual dullness being replaced by vibrant joy, 
weak faith being replaced by bold witness, disinterest in prayer being replaced by fervent intercession, boring Bible reading being replaced by passion for the Word, disinterest in global missions being replaced by energy for Christ's name among the nations, and lukewarm worship being replaced by zeal for the greatness of God's glory. Lord, when Gideon had thousands of men, you said, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. You stripped his army to 300. And with that, you conquered the peoples of the east who covered the ground like the locusts and whose camels were like the sand of the sea. O Lord, take the mighty 300 of Bethlehem and bless this church beyond anything we have ever dreamed. In Jesus' name, amen.